This message first aired on the radio on August 19, 2003. We have been studying an overview, or taking up an overview, of the dispensations of God. In doing that, we have come to the fifth dispensation, which we want to begin today, which is the dispensation of law. We've spent the last, for those of you that have been with us, we've spent most of the last three weeks covering the previous dispensation, the dispensation of promise. We spent a little extra time there because that dispensation has in it so much of the foundations of the faith that are commented upon in the New Testament. On the other hand, this next dispensation, which we call one of law, beginning with the nation of Israel incubating, or we might say in the fetal position in Egypt, covers so much of our Bible that one is staggered at the prospect of summarizing it. So I don't even want to say we're going to summarize it. I don't want to say we're even taking an overview of it. We're just looking at it and defining it, and that will take us several days because after all, we're talking about everything from the first chapter of the book of Exodus all the way through, one could say, all the way through the book of Acts. And so with that kind of an enormous agenda in mind, we really just want to touch upon a few things. And I determined that the way that I'd like to approach this is just to take it in part from the preaching of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, which those of you who've been listening to this series, remember that this preaching of Stephen which resulted in his being stoned to death, is a wonderful summary. In a sense, one can see this sweeping summary of Stephen, a most amazing sermon, if you want to put it that way. We can see that it almost is a passing of ministry from Stephen directly to the Apostle Paul. He demonstrates such a command of the Scripture, of course, in the power of the Holy Ghost, being filled, and certainly also having the Holy Spirit come upon him, being outfitted for a day, a time, an hour, and a minute, which resulted in his martyr death. When we look at this section in Acts chapter 7, and we're going to be looking from verse 17 today. We went up to verse 16 yesterday. But we want to begin looking at verse 17. When we see the sweeping understanding that he has of the Scripture, immediately we feel the need to also have a summary or an outline of Scripture in our own selves that we would be ready to give a word to whoever needs it. So let's just look at it, because it's better read than just talked about. So we'll look at Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 17, and we'll find this to be an introduction to this dispensation of law, which we call the dispensation of law. We might call it the dispensation of Israel as God's nation, but dispensation of law has been used by others, and it's a good term, it's a, it's a meaningful term, and we'll just stick with it. Verse 17, Acts chapter 7, But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. And you remember who that is. That's the Assyrian that came in. Scripture calls him the Assyrian. He is not an Egyptian. He is not merely of a different disposition toward the people of Joseph as the previous king or pharaoh but he is of a different kind, he's of a different race. And the same, verse 19, dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born, and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. Now we can take the dispensations of God, and we can lay out the time periods what they cover, but really they're also denominated by the men who they feature. Now, the dispensation of law, 
dispensation of time of law. Of course, Moses is the inaugurator. No, Moses is no doubt the prime figure in all of Israel until the Lord Jesus Christ comes, but certainly a prime figure in Israel, the largest character in the portrait of the nation of Israel in its history before the Lord Jesus Christ came. We have other large players that we'll speak to. We have, certainly we have David. We're going to have to talk about David a little bit. We have Elijah, and we're going to have to talk about him a little bit. But we have these large characters that come out to greet us out of this dispensation, just as we had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come out to greet us in the dispensation of promise. But we see now the connection and the disjunction that this dispensation represents in the preaching of Stephen uh, to his countrymen, because he inaugurates this by saying, this section by saying, when the time of the promise drew nigh. That's a very interesting thought. As soon as the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had swore to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, verse 17, until another king arose. It was as if, and of course this is what Stephen's saying, that God had promised the promise to Abraham, but at the time of the confirmation of the promise, deep horror of darkness fell upon Abraham. I picture him asleep, but it's not necessarily so that that happened in his sleep. And he heard the Lord tell him at that time that his seed would be in bondage 400 years in Egypt, but God would call them out. So now the promise drawing nigh, the children of Israel growing in Egypt, just as promised to Abraham. When that happened, another king arose, which knew not Joseph, and this one now sought to destroy the seed of the children of Israel. He says that he's the same dealt subtly uh, with our fathers. Uh, really, the word here is a compound word. It has to do with plotted against, really. In fact, the idea is that he thought out a scheme, if I might just do a little interpretation rather than just translation, he thought out a scheme that would throw down the nation of Israel. And that scheme, of course, is the ancient old scheme, just in another form, that the enemy always has been using. The enemy's attempt to destroy the seed of the promised seed is a consistent theme of the Scripture. When Adam and Eve begat Cain and Abel, Satan got behind Cain and destroyed Abel, trying to extinguish the promised seed, but Seth. And during that next dispensation, which we call the dispensation of conscience, you see the enemy's attempt to destroy the race of man by coming into the daughters of Adam through his angelic forces. And God, seeing that and that being almost successful, as we, we, we anthropomorphize uh, for the sake of drama. Of course, nothing is almost with God. It either is or isn't. God now took eight souls in the ark and preserved the race, and immediately we see the enemy taking up with the Hamitic rebellion and trying to destroy the promised seed of Shem. And so, of course, now here we have the promised seed of Shem in Egypt, and this is the further development of the rebellion, we might say of Nimrod's rebellion, which certainly grew, kingdoms among men trying to destroy God's promised kingdom through his nation of Israel. And here, the subtle ploy, uh, the scheme is to destroy the young children at their birth. 
And we talked a little bit yesterday about how the enemy scheme, even today, is to destroy children before their birth. But this is now the promised seed. This is now the promised seed. And the promised seed specifically comes through Israel. And so the attack specifically is against Israel, though generally it may affect others. It is specifically, especially in this instance of which portion that we're taking up the study, the time of Israel and Egypt, it is specifically against Israel. And today there is still the enmity against Israel. It is the enmity against the Jewish people. It is throughout the whole world. They are hated for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they deny him. There is still going to be, and and now that the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be stopped, the enemy cannot stop the coming of the Savior, that's already happened. He cannot stop the his own defeat. Uh, he's already been, as the scripture says, paralyzed through the work of the cross, wherein is his defeat by the blood of Christ. Whereas that cannot be reversed or uh, eliminated, his hatred to the Lord Jesus Christ is still every bit as much, and his desire to take away that which remains for the Lord Jesus Christ, the inheritance of Jesus Christ in his people, both in his heavenly people, the church, which is his body, and in his earthly people, the Israel of God, which will one day believe in him, the enemy's attempt is still against the heavenly and earthly seed. And the earthly seed will one day, literally, racially, genealogically, through the nation of Israel, will come a nation that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ in a day at his second coming. And this is not going without spiritual contest. This is not going without a warfare. We see it beginning clear back here in the preaching of Acts, also in the book of Exodus, which this preaching summarizes, and we will yet see it in the future as the enemies of God will attempt to destroy Israel, God on his part taking Israel into a time of great tribulation, and in their tribulation uh, they will seek diligently seek God, and they'll look upon him whom they have pierced, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and so all Israel one day will be saved. A wonderful truth that that is. I don't get tired of repeating it, and I trust you don't grow weary of hearing it. So here's the picture now of another king that rises up. And who's this Assyrian a picture of? Why, he's a picture of the man of sin who's to come. This is one of his titles, the Assyrian. It certainly would fulfill Scripture. It would be biblically correct if the man of sin arose out of that area of the world, if he rose out of uh, Syria. Even today, we know that there is one coming who's a man of sin. I personally have done some study in this and believe that the man of sin is to come up out of the of a particular quarter, out of the ancient Greek empire, which does cover uh, Syria, Iraq, and that portion of the ancient Greek Empire. We'll leave that off for this moment, just to say that this is a picture here of the man of sin, the Assyrian who rose up. This pharaoh is not as the other pharaoh. And when the man of sin comes, he will fulfill the prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to the nation of Israel. The Lord Jesus said, I come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. There's one coming who will come in his own name. Him you will receive. And that's the unhappy truth about the nation of Israel today in unbelief. The gathering of the people of Israel will be to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
anything else they gather to, whether it's a national campaign, national hope, whatever it is they're gathering to today, they gather to in error, and this will lead to their demise. A man of sin will rise up, the son of perdition, they will embrace him. You say, how could Israel do that? Israel, I remember Jerry Falwell saying, can't imagine how Israel will embrace a Gentile. Just remind us all that Israel, under the leadership of their errant religious leaders, were the ones who told Pilate, we have no king but Caesar, and as concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood be upon us and upon our children. Now, that can be taken two ways, his blood upon us and on our children. His blood can be upon the nation of Israel in blood guiltiness, for the one who turned the Lord Jesus Christ over to Pilate had the greater sin, Therefore, the nation of Israel had a greater sin than the Romans, and Judas a greater sin than Pilate. So the blood guiltiness can be greater. But on the other hand, he's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He came to die. He shed his blood willingly. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Let me say that's great grace. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses from all unrighteousness. He's the Passover lamb. And as we lead to the climax of the birth of the nation Israel, we will see the, if we might put it this way, uh, we will see the menstrual blood of Israel, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ birthing this nation. Now, we look here at the story of Moses as given by Stephen. It says, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. Now, Moses here in Acts, Stephen calls him exceeding fair. This is just a little child. I don't know how you look at little children. I have had a lot of brand new babies shown to me as I have so many grandchildren and also others. I see them right at their birth. And the invariable statement, isn't he cute? Isn't she cute? Gee, I don't know. Not to me. I don't say they all look alike, but they sure all look similar. And I don't know how cute a little a little newborn baby can be. And thankfully here, the scripture doesn't mean that Moses was really a cute baby. When it says he was exceeding fair, those words by Stephen, exceeding fair, have to do with his selection by God. We'll look at Moses' selection in just a moment. We're talking about Moses. We see in Hebrews 11 that his parents, Amram and Jochebed, acted in faith when they preserved Moses from the decreed death that was given to the children of Israel and to the midwives uh, that they should be cast out and really murdered at birth. It tells us in Hebrews 11:23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. And so they didn't move with fear, but they moved with faith. Uh, those things are opposite. And they moved in faith. And when you move in faith, of course, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Somehow Amram and Jochebed must have had some word from the Lord about their son. And so that is what it means that he's a proper child. That is, he's a child who's, who was selected by God. Here he is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, who from birth was the Savior of the world. His name shall be called Jesus. Uh, he had his miraculous birth. Of course, uh, Moses preserved early in his life from, from the death decreed by the Pharaoh. The Lord Jesus Christ also preserved from murder, from the murderous Herod, the Edomite, 
just as Moses was born in Egypt and came out of Egypt, so the Lord Jesus Christ was taken down into Egypt, and out of Egypt God called his son as he as he grew older. Now, uh, we, we, we're back in Acts chapter 7. It says, and when he was cast out, now Moses was cast out, that is to say he was taken out of the house, and you may know the story, he was left with his sister to watch, and Pharaoh's daughter was bathing, and Pharaoh took up a basket with a child in it. Moses then, also a picture of the one born out of water, we might say, and Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And verse 22, Acts 7, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Now, we're going to find out from about Moses that at one point he begins to say that he is unable to speak. He tells the Lord he's unable to speak, even though he's a guy here who said to be mighty in words and deeds. Some have tried to negotiate that and said, well, he was mighty but not eloquent. Well, mighty in words, I believe that that includes that he was probably a pretty powerful speaker. He was quite educated and able to use words very well. But here's one thing you find when God asks a man to speak for him. He may be eloquent, he may be educated, but when God asks us to speak, suddenly uh, we have a hard time speaking, we stammer around, we talk around the subject, we we tend to not be direct as we should be, just because we're guilty, because of the rejection of the Lord, because of the position that it puts us in to be rejected by the world. And Moses knows that, and anybody who preaches God's Word knows what I'm talking about here. You can be skilled in speech, you can be experienced in it, but when it comes to speaking for God, it's also a terrible and fearful thing, and we come up against we come up against the failure of our flesh in taking that matter up. Well, we'll get to that about Moses in just a minute. But from his birth, you can see that Moses is a vessel prepared by God. Now we look at Exodus chapter two, and we can read a little bit more about about Moses. We'll look at Exodus chapter two and just begin at the beginning there. And there went a man from the house of Levi, and we remember that now Moses is from the house of Levi. He's the fourth generation down from Levi, so in the fourth generation, he is the deliverer of Egypt. Moses is uh, fourth down from Levi. It makes, counting Levi, it makes him seventh down from Abraham. Abraham, by the way, is the seventh guy down. He was called a Hebrew. He's the seventh guy down from Eber. So we, we do see some proper timing here, or some, we might say, prophetic timing in place here. This man took a wife, the daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took him for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and pitch and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. Now, this is in the reeds by the by the river. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's edge. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. 
And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she called his name Moses, which is the Egyptian word meaning saved from water, and a Hebrew word meaning taken out of water, because I drew him out of the water. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked upon their burdens. Now, I want to say that Moses, here preserved in Egypt, taken into Pharaoh's house, and when he's full grown, he goes out and sees his brethren. Remember that he's raised by his mother, and so we don't have any problem realizing that he understood who he was and who his people were. And when we look at the book of Hebrews, we have a commentary on what was Moses' faith here. I'm sure the word of God came to Moses before he was uh, 80 years old, certainly before he came to the bush in Midian. The word came to him through the instruction of his mother. But it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents, Hebrews 11:23, because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Verse 24, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, or reproach for Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And I want to just pause for a minute about the great faith here of Moses, because uh, Moses didn't show his greatest faith when he was before Pharaoh and God worked great signs and wonders. After all, signs and wonders are not faith. They are what? Sight. And so Moses' great faith wasn't when he did great signs and wonders before the king. It wasn't great faith when he communed with God, God in the form of a burning bush. It wasn't great faith when he went up to get the law. His great faith, his commended faith in the book of Hebrews, was his forsaking right here at the beginning of his life of faith, the forsaking of the place of privilege in Egypt. And a friend of mine, you know, I listened with some interest to a discussion just uh, about a half an hour ago of men quarreling with each other about who was more commendable because of their attainments and really love of the world, who makes the most money, whatever it is. Here's Moses. He refused to take the position of honor and esteem. Moses refused to be, be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, even though he was raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. As such, Moses stood to be in line to be Pharaoh. Certainly, when Pharaoh's firstborn died, he would have to turn to his daughter instead of to his son, and that would have been very possibly Moses' spot. Whether it is or isn't, he was a high-up high fellow in the court of the Egyptians, stood to gain a lot, and was a man mighty in words and deeds, learned in all the learning of the Egyptians. This was a guy who was very valuable to the Egyptians. He is very valuable to the world. He has value to the world. You have great value to the world. The question is, are you going to cash in and get what you can in the world and make a great name for yourself? Or are you like Moses and you consider that the, the reproach of Christ results in greater riches than whatsoever you can attain in this world? That is the forward-looking faith of Moses. 
That is the faith commended out of the book of Hebrews. Will you today, brother, I'm talking to you, will you today identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in his rejection, esteeming the reproach for Christ today to be greater riches than the pleasures of sin for this short season, whether that season be 50 years, 70 years, or even 90 years, it's a short season. Are you going to do? Are you going to enjoy the pleasures of sin? Do you want to maximize your opportunities in the world? Uh, this world is no friend of grace. Have you wasted your Christian life already, and now you wonder what it is you can do? Well, you can suffer reproach for Christ by associating with him and uh, those who are so rejected as he is, calling upon him with those who uh, associating with those who call upon the Lord Jesus out of a pure heart i just put in that parenthesis now moses when he's grown it tells us in exodus chapter 2 moses was grown he went to his brethren and looked on their burdens and he spied an egyptian smiting a hebrew one of his brethren verse 12 and he looked this way and that way and when he saw there was no man he slew the egyptian and hid him in the sand well, I don't know how many, maybe you've watched too many movies. If you've watched too many movies, you'll get this wrong. If you watch that crazy movie by Cecil B. DeMille called The Ten Commandments, by the way, that that can destroy your, your whole perspective on the Scripture. I don't recommend that movie, even though uh, I know it's highly recommended. I don't recommend it. There, there's almost nothing correct about that movie. But let me tell you this. Moses, in Stephen's commentary in Acts chapter 7, it said when, uh, verse 22, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, was mighty in words and in deeds, and when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian for he supposed his supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. So Moses here has a correct understanding, and he didn't look this way and that way to see if anybody was going to see him do some vile deed. This is not a guy doing a vile deed. This is a genuine hero. This is a heroic man. This is a man standing to defend one who cannot defend himself. Greater love has no man than he that lays his life down for his friend. And Moses is here going to risk his life to defend his friend, his brother as the Egyptian is smiting him. You say, well, why did he look this way and that way? Well, he looked this way and that way to look for some help, to see if there would be some proper authority to intervene in this wicked deed. And uh, when there was no man, he brought himself in. This is a great picture of our Lord and Savior who looked upon the sufferings of us, and he looked this way and that way, and there was no man. I'm thinking of the one who who was by the Bethesda and waited for someone to take him into the water, according to that superstition. And he said, I have no man. That's what he told the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus told him, take up your bed, you're healed. When the Lord, when the Lord looks, he sees no man to help us. When we look, we see no man to help us. And seeing no man, he saves us by his own arm. Here, Moses, a picture of our Savior. After all, our Savior is one that comes up after Moses, like unto me, as Moses prophesied. Well, Moses assumed or thought that his brethren, according to Stephen's uh, testimony in Acts chapter 7, as he teaches us, 
that that his brethren would understand that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. So now we look what happened with him. It says, verse 13, he went out the second day. Behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. Now these are brothers fighting each other. These are Hebrews fighting each other. And he said to him that did the wrong, he found which one was wrong, why do you smite your fellow? And he said, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killedst the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now, what did Moses fear? Well, he didn't fear the Egyptian. He didn't fear the Egyptians until he found out that his brethren rejected him. There's so much to learn here about the way of faith. And Moses understood what his role was to be to the children of Israel, clearly, but they did not understand his role. This is a great trial for Moses. In fact, I would say this is the greater trial for Moses throughout his life, is trying to be understanding and patient with those who did not understand the purpose to which God called him. And I also am cautioned here when I look at this because Moses failed in that. And and we'll see that as we continue looking at this dispensation. We'll be back in a minute. Here we find Moses not being understood by his brethren, his ministry to them not understood by his brethren, his leadership of them not being understood, and they reject him. And here we also have now a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Moses was the deliverer. He slays the Egyptian. He puts to death the Egyptian who was about to kill his brother. He rescues him. And though he saved an Israelite, and though he was the the intended savior of that nation in the temporal sense at that time, they rejected him at his first coming, but they will receive him at his return. And so here he's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who slew the Egyptian. In fact, he slew, we were in bondage in Egyptian darkness, and we are in bondage to sin, and the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. He defeated our enemy and yet Israel rejected him. And so he set them aside, but when he comes back the second time, then they will receive him, just like they received Moses the second time. But now we've got him here the first time. As Stephen said in Acts 7, verse 29, Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Now here Moses becomes a stranger and a pilgrim in the land of Midian, in the book of Exodus, we see that Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, there in Midian. He becomes a shepherd. He learns to be a shepherd. It says, when he found out that the thing was known, it tells us in verse 15, now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses, but Moses fled from the face of that Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Here, Moses still demonstrates his calling as he helped the people of Midian, who are uh, near relatives, through Abraham. And we won't go into that right now. But Moses dwells as a stranger and a pilgrim. Meanwhile, that particular king of Egypt died, but nothing changes for the children of Israel. It tells us in Exodus chapter 2, it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, 
and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up to God by reason of the bondage, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. So God now allows the children of Israel to go into groaning for another 40 years while Moses spends his time as a alien and as a pilgrim in the land of Midian. And he's a keeper of the flock of, for his father-in-law. He found his wife Zipporah. In fact, she bears him a son named Gershom, which means stranger. Actually, it means a stranger in this place, for he said, I've been a stranger in a strange land. And there you get the Robert Heinlein novel name. Well, we look what happens to Moses. Well, 40 years he's in he's in Pharaoh's house. 40 the number of testing in scripture. He comes out, thinks his brethren would uh, receive him who he was and what he was supposed to do. They wouldn't. 40 years he's in the backside of the desert watching sheep, learning to be a shepherd. Then it tells us Exodus chapter 3 verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And this now, God, theophany of God, burning bush that doesn't get consumed in the fire, our God's a consuming fire. This is an amazing event, and it tells us, Stephen tells us a little bit more in Acts chapter 7 and verse 30, when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled, and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place which thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel, which appeared to him in the bush. So we see this great preaching of Stephen now characterizing exactly what happened to Moses. Here he's in the wilderness. He's in the land that is promised to, to Abraham. He's a stranger there, and he comes to Mount Sinai, which is where that bush is. We learn that from Stephen's commentary. And the Lord says, I have seen, surely I have seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their groaning. I'm coming to deliver them. We have Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, with a little more detail than Stephen quoted. I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This now the call of God, this now the call to one nation under God being led by Moses. Stephen continues and says this, This Moses whom they refused, this one 
verse 36, he brought them out after he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. And so we also see the prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in this. We see Moses as a grand type. Now, what does God do to deliver the children of Israel? Well, he calls upon Moses to lead them out. He calls upon Moses to be his mouthpiece. Moses, of course, is troubled by this. He says unto God, Who am I, in Exodus 3, verse 11, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And so the token of his goodness and his leadership of Moses to the children of Israel is going to be the return to this mountain where God will speak and give the ten words. Moses now says unto God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto him? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Now that's the translation of the Hebrew tetragrammaton, the four letters that are unpronounceable that become, okay, a little bit controversial these days among those who believe the scriptures but are being Judaized, which is something to avoid, by the way. But here's the unpronounceable name of God. We don't have to do, and we're not in the position of ignorance, that the prophets and that the rabbinicals, the rabbis, so-called, have been for all these many years because we know who this is that Moses was communing with. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know what his name is. He has given him the name that's above every name, and that name is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's unpronounceable here. That also is a picture. That also is a picture. It is not time for God to reveal personally himself in the way that he fully does when Messiah comes. And so... We have that. God says, Thus shall thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, has sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, have sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers has appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen which is done to you in Egypt. And so Moses does this, actually. Moses, well, first of all, Moses says, I can't speak. He tells the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Well, this makes the Lord angry. Of course, this is while Moses refuses to be the Lord's spokesman, really. He needs his brother Aaron to be his mouth. God tells Moses, you're going to be a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron is going to be your prophet. I'll give you your brother to do the speaking. But in the sovereign sovereignty of God, of course, these arrangements are important 
because Moses really is the leader of all Israel. One might say he's the king of Israel. You may say, well, Israel doesn't have a king. Well, at this time, Moses is king of Israel. He's the head of Israel. He's the leader of Israel. And it has never, and he's also a prophet in Israel as he is bringing the word of God to Israel. Let me assure you, no one except the Lord Jesus Christ has ever been prophet, priest, and king. So here Moses except the Lord Jesus. So Moses is going to be a prophet and a king, as it were, but he's not going to be the priest. That's going to be given to Aaron, and we'll have, therefore, within Levi, the Aaronic priesthood. And let me just say this, this is a consistent arrangement by God throughout the Scriptures, because we're going to come across David. And David is a king, and David is a prophet, but David is also no priest. So prophet, priest, king, that's only our Lord Jesus Christ. He has those three offices which he exercises consecutively. He's been a prophet, he's now a priest, and when he comes again, he will come as king. So now the Lord sends Moses to the children of Israel with Aaron. So Moses is in the wilderness, and we find after he's and God gives him a rod gives him the rod which through which God will do signs and we find in Exodus for this Moses went and returned to Jethro his father-in-law and said unto him let me go I pray thee and return to my brethren which are in Egypt and see whether they be yet alive and Jethro said to Moses go in peace and the Lord said unto Moses and Midian return to Egypt for all the men are dead which sought thy life and Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hands. Now we have this interesting little sidelight. The Lord said unto Moses, When you go return to Egypt, see that thou do all the wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thy hand, but I'll harden his heart, he will not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So the Lord actually tells Moses where all this will end up. And he also tells Moses that Israel is his firstborn. And that never changes. The adoption of Israel as the firstborn nation of God belongs to Israel and Israel alone. No one else is going to get that. Not America, not Canada, not greater Mexico, not even the state of Texas. No, no one is going to be the firstborn son nationally of God except Israel. And one day Israel will demonstrate that. The other thing we have is this occasion, verse 24 of Exodus 4. It came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Now, here's the interesting thing. Moses goes on, and the Lord seeks to kill Moses. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son, that's Gershom, and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me, or a husband of bloods art thou to me. So God let Moses go, and then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. And here we find some of the trouble that Moses has. We can take, I guess, a little comfort in the fact that Moses is like us. He's got trouble with his wife. He wanted to circumcise the boy, apparently. She didn't want to. Circumcision was for the Jews. 
But we also find this, and brother, look at it. God is very serious about his commands. I'm reminded of the scripture in 1 Corinthians that they that have wives be as though they have none. A man was made to hear the voice of God, not the voice of Zipporah. We'll talk again tomorrow. May God bless you.